0: Thank you for tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast, brought to you by the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's May 2022, and you're listening to Episode 288, which is a conversation about the initial draft majority position of the Supreme Court regarding the abortion case Roe v. Wade, and this is a draft that was leaked. On this episode, I'm joined by Jay Watts, who is the founder and president of Merrily Human Ministries, Inc., an organization founded to equip Christians and other pro-life advocates to defend the intrinsic dignity of all human life. Jay has written an online exclusive article for the Christian Research Journal, and it's called, The Leaked Draft, Is This the Fall of Roe v. Wade?, And you can access it if you are a subscriber at our website, Equip.org, because one of the benefits of being a subscriber to our journal is that you receive access to all of our online exclusive articles that are featured on this podcast. Currently, if you're not already a subscriber, there's a great way to subscribe to our journal for the month of May and June 2022. We are running some very special offers for you to give us a gift to partner with us for our fiscal year end. So for a gift of a donation of $30 or more, you can receive a subscription to the Christian Research Journal. And normally it's a $33.50 retail value. For $55 for your gift, you can get two subscriptions. You can get three subscriptions for your gift of $75 or more. Or for your gift of a donation of $100 or more, you can get For subscriptions, it's a great way to give gift subscriptions to other folks that you would like to receive this journal, and you would also receive two copies, one each, of two hardcover books that have the best from our archives of key Christian research journal articles. One book is called What is Truth, and the other book is called Whose Ethics, Whose Morals. And now on to the podcast. Jay, it's good to have you on.
1: It's always great to be here.
0: This has been the talk, of course, in the news cycle for quite some time, because earlier this month, the online political journalism website Politico published an initial draft majority opinion written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito And that draft shows that the Supreme Court has voted to strike down the landmark decision about abortion, Roe versus Wade, its decision. So I want to start with talking about the leaked draft. Obviously, everyone knows that it's a draft and it indicates that Roe should be overturned. But how did we get there? I mean, why does the majority rule... Say that now is the time to overturn roe versus Wade
1: well it, what was really interesting obviously it's a first draft it says that right at the beginning this is a first draft and so we can't trust that this is going to be final because there's a process that they go through but uh, what what happened was that you had and we saw this building for like a year right is you had the the makeup of the Supreme Court that would consider overturning Roe. You actually had, in other cases, decisions of the last year, justices like Justice Thomas, basically making public statements saying, if you want Roe to be reconsidered, send us something now. You have the people that are going to evaluate Roe versus Wade on its legal merits in the Supreme Court right now, and enough that they felt like they could have this challenge. So Mississippi, in the case, the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health case, they actually say, this, the people who crafted that appeal to the Supreme Court, that you cannot have our Mississippi law, which moves the restriction to abortion to 15 weeks. So it takes it from viability and drops it to 15 weeks. And they say you cannot have the Mississippi law and Roe v. Wade existing at the same time. And so in the language of their challenge, they're not just saying allow us to restrict abortion at 15 weeks. They're directly saying we want row gone. And if you rule in our favor that we're allowed to restrict abortions at the 15-week mark, which is very consistent with international law, and, and it points out that the viability standard is, is no more an objective standard than the 15-week standard that they're looking for. So they put out the challenge that it's our decision, it's our law, or it's Roe, but the two cannot coexist. Chief Justice Roberts doesn't agree with that, and he would like to find some compromise between the two of those things. But you have now, it appears, with the first draft, five Supreme Court justices on the conservative side without Roberts joining them who are saying or or affirming what that Mississippi appeal said, that this is – This is a case where they have made a compelling case that the state ought to be free to limit it to 15 weeks, that the viability standard is nothing, there's nothing objective about the viability standard that in any way makes it superior to a 15-week mark, and that the legal reasoning in Roe is flawed enough that it's time for us to move past it and to send it back to the states. So for, for those who like Roe, there's always been a sense that they liked the result of Roe. But there's always been criticism about the legal reasoning of Roe. But the court has never been composed of people who are willing to make that kind of a, of a sweeping change. For obvious reasons, there's a lot of reasons why people become very nervous about the idea of these broad sweeping changes. What We have now is a court that does not seem to be afraid of, of reorganizing the way that the United States approaches legally the issue of abortion, that they feel comfortable addressing Roe on its merits and saying, is, is Roe good law? Was Roe a good decision? Not, was the result of Roe something that a lot of people liked, uh, but was Roe itself and Casey, the subsequent decision after that in 1992, were these two founded on, on solid legal reasoning? And they say it's not, and they're not alone. I mean, people have been saying that for years, but you now have a court where the majority at this point willing to say it was a bad decision.
0: So according to this first draft, what's the exact legal justification for overturning Roe? Because I think some of that has gotten lost in just the fact that this was kind of almost unprecedented to have this leak and people are just focusing so much on just the bottom line that I see a lot of comments online, specifically various different articles and people are not really dealing with the text in the draft itself. So what's the exact legal justification for overturning Roe?
1: Yeah, the draft is written by Justice Alito, and he offers really. There's three main points that he makes. So the first is that for those who aren't familiar with how, and most people aren't, by the way, most people really don't fully understand what Roe v. Wade, Doe versus Bolton, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, these bulwarks of of what establish a, abortion as a fundamental right in the United States, as far as Supreme Court decisions actually says. So it was in those cases, going back a little bit, it was they grounded the right to have an abortion as a fundamental right in the right to privacy, the right to privacy not being directly stated as an existing right in the Constitution, but one in previous cases that usually had to do with sexual freedom, particularly something like Griswold versus Connecticut that preceded Roe v. Wade that had to do with contraception. They said was that you have a right to privacy that is not directly stated, but that is suggested and implied in emanations and penumbras and uh, and and that the, there is a sense that it has existed. And the standards that they use is that it's deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. It implicitly the concept in the ordered and the concept of ordered liberty. And so they said these right to privacy is deeply rooted in our history and implied and, and and as a part of our ordered liberty and they extended that right into the right to abortion. So what Alito does is he has three main points. Number one, he starts off with saying that the, the history that was used to justify this was flawed history. There was, a, there was a whole section of Roe v. Wade that grounded the history of abortion in such a way as to meet the standard that I just gave, deeply rooted in this nation's history. right? And so they they there was a whole text of it that grounded in history. And he said that history was deeply flawed. Uh, the next thing that they did was that he, he points out that even if we accept the right of privacy as established in Lake Griswold versus Connecticut, and say that there, that it is, that it does meet those standards, that extending that same implication to the right to abortion is a leap too far because there are substantive differences between giving someone the right to make sexual choices and sexual freedom and privacy and giving someone the right to destroy an unborn human life. And that those are not the same thing and that people could, should be able to see that clearly. And then the third thing was that particularly with Casey in the 1992 case, When even when you had justices that seem in their writing to be uncomfortable with abortion, what they do say is that at this point, we have a principle called stare decisis, where we have to honor the decisions that have been made in the past so that the Supreme Court doesn't become a political unit that just responds to the ebbs and flows of politics and the culture. It is safeguarded from that. So he offers a five-point justification For overturning precedent and for for not looking or not appealing to the principle of stare decisis and 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 letting precedent stand, what he says that it's egregiously bad ruling. It was damaging consequences to our culture. uh, it, It it influenced over a decade and deepened division. Right, that there was these standards about what had happened. That basically what he says is yes, we should appeal to precedent. But when something as as bad as Roe is, not just the legal reasoning for it, which he's already taken and addresses in further detail in that particular portion of it, but also the impact that Roe has had. Because what Roe and Doe promised to do when that decision was made back in 1973 was to get us past this divisive moment and move us to a place where we were able to be united and just get past this. This was a battle that was going to upset the country. Let's just move past it legally by establishing it as a fundamental right. And as he points out, not only did that not happen, but the opposite happened. The divisions just deepened because of this terrible decision. And so the only way to settle this is to send it back to the states and let communities fight it out with each other on a local level so that we can get a sense that people are living in the world that they have some power over again on this issue.
0: I want to tell you about a very special promotion that we're having to grow the subscriptions of the Christian Research Journal and get our magazine into more people's hands for Christians to be equipped, as we say in the tagline on our print edition, to be equipped in exercising truth and Experiencing Life. So we give you all kinds of articles that help you with Christian apologetics and doctrinal discernment, as well as articles that will help you grow in your faith and help you understand your union with Christ even more, including this subject that we're talking about today, about what it means to become older and what the Bible has to say about aging from a biblical perspective. And so here's how you can Get a subscription, help us for our fiscal year end, and also to maybe give some subscriptions to friends, your pastor, or family members. And so if you go to this link, equip.org backslash product backslash journal offer, that's one word, journal offer, you will go to this landing page that will tell you that you can get a subscription. For a gift to the ministry of $30 or more, and normally a subscription, as I mentioned on this podcast, is $33.50. You can get two subscriptions for a gift of $55 or more, three subscriptions for a gift of $75 or more, or four subscriptions for a gift of a 100 or more, and you would receive two hardcover books, one copy each from the vault of the Best of the Christian Research Journal, and so we have a book called What is Truth? And another book that's called Whose Ethics, Whose Morals. So for a gift of $100 or more to the Christian Research Institute, you will get four subscriptions and two hardcover books. Plus, all of the subscriptions, as you know, include access to our online exclusive articles that you hear me mention A lot on this podcast. So you would get all the online exclusive articles as well as the print subscription right to your door. So please consider giving a gift for, to help us for our fiscal year end as well as spreading out the information for the Christian Research Journal to family and friends and maybe even church staff members that you attend. It's a really great equipping gift. And so again, The URL is equip.org backslash product backslash journal offer. You know, what's interesting is that in this first draft, Justice Alito criticizes the history of abortion as, you know, it's represented in the Roe decision. And that's interesting because I don't know if a lot of people who have made up their mind about this particular issue, like the average, you know, citizen really knows that much about the history of abortion. So what are the criticisms of Roe's version of the history of abortion in the United States?
1: There was a historian by the name of Cyril Means who wrote two articles that were submitted to the court at the time that the Roe decision was being made. And the entire history that is offered to justify, again, going back to that idea that in order to say that a fundamental right has been implied but not stated in the Constitution, the standard means it has to be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicitly in the concept of ordered liberty. And so in order to establish that, Cyril Means wrote these two articles, and the court basically just copied and pasted. And in, in the time before copying and pasting was a thing, that's basically what they did. They copied and pasted Cyril Means. History uncritically, right, and and since then there have been and I have I have a file full of articles written by legal historians who criticize Cyril Means' history as being completely out of touch with what actually happened. So happens as Alito goes back and draws from these many many critical resources. Right, he's not going to take one person and say this person said Cyril Means is wrong. He actually he draws from multiple different sources to demonstrate. That at the time, for particular, let's say the 14th Amendment, at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, the overwhelming position in the United States was that abortion ought to be illegal and that it was illegal. Now, there's a quickening distinction, which some people have tried to make a bigger deal of. and They say, well, it was it was illegal after quickening. But when you go back to mid 19th century medical practice. Quickening was the moment that people knew that they had a live baby inside of them. And so at this point, what they say is from the moment that we know that you have a live baby inside of you, you're not allowed to kill that baby. It's a violation of the law for you to do that. And that's the law across the United States at the time that it happens for people who want to say, Oh yeah, but they could have had abortions prior to quickening. Well, they just weren't medically sophisticated in that way, right? Quickening happens 14, 15, 16 weeks. Most people don't know they're pregnant nowadays with pregnancy tests until somewhere around the sixth week, oftentimes. Uh, And so we have a tendency to look at history sometimes and think of it in in modern terms. Well, we can't do that or contemporary terms. We have to look at it in the context in which it existed. And so prior to quickening, there was no evidence, solid evidence that you were pregnant with a live baby. And so what the law said was the moment that we know that you have a living human being inside of you, you're not allowed to kill it. If you don't know, you wouldn't have tried to get an abortion because there was a representative danger in abortions until the late 19th century that if you read some historians, they'll say that it was tantamount to suicide. So so what they do is they go back and Alito corrects this with multiple sources to say that the serial means this one particular author that they relied on to establish this tradition of abortion law in the United States offered a flawed and wrong. I mean, just a wrong view of history of abortion. And to undercut, then now we undercut this idea that's deeply rooted in our nation's history and implied and ordered liberty from the beginning. It was not; it never has been. It was there was no tradition that abortion was accepted in the United States, and there's ample historical resources to demonstrate that.
0: So the draft also takes aim at grounding the right of abortion in the Fourteenth Amendment and, you know, an implied right to privacy established in other cases relating to sexual privacy for, you know, for example, the right to use contraception. So what distinctions are made between other recognized privacy issues and abortion in particular?
1: For me, when I read Roe v. Wade, Doe versus Bolton, Planned Panner versus Casey, and I see, you see the progression, right? Actually, as they move through this series of Supreme Court decisions where they have married people should be allowed to use contraception without the interference from the state, single people ought to be able to use contraception. Without a- interference from the state. You see this progression of movement towards this, this privacy, this right to privacy. And even by the way, during the Griswold decisions for Griswold versus B. Connecticut, which establishes that right to use contraception, they, they actually see this coming. And it's actually argued from one of the justices that, look, this is as we ri- establish this right to privacy. This cannot extend to something like abortion, though. I mean, he says that, right? This cannot extend to something like abortion. And it, what's funny is, I or not funny, but I think it's even the response from the, the, the people who will ultimately use this for abortion. We're like, oh, of course, it would never be used for abortion. We would never use this right to privacy to cover abortion. So when you read it, there's something startling about the idea that, that these are the same thing. And, and you still hear this today, by the way, you, you'll see this in Twitter arguments. I, mean, I, I think Twitter is a horrible place for arguing. And most of what you see there is awful in the sense of that. It's just so factually inaccurate that it's painful to read, but you, you still read people that say things like, oh, well, if you believe in contraception, then you have no problem with abortion. Well, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, there, d- contraception is just a different thing. And one thing we're Now, there are reasons that some people are against contraception, but it's not the same thing as destroying life. If you prevent life from coming into existence, it's not the same thing as destroying life. And that's what these justices, what Justice Alito ultimately says here is like. there's a clear leap that's made here between the right for you to make decisions about participating in actions in such a way as to not create life or to be able to make sexual decisions between you and another consenting adult in privacy And you having the authority or the right, the fundamental right to basically contract a third party to help you destroy another human life, that these are just fundamentally different things and that anybody that evaluates these things closely will be able to see the more you look at it, the more they are just absolutely different. Uh, And so he said the right to privacy that covers all of these other things just cannot be extended into an act that requires you to, in most cases, seek the support of a third party to help you destroy another human life. This is a different kind, substantially a different kind of action than using contraception. And the right to privacy can be believed to exist to cover certain things, but it cannot be extended to cover something that is deeply immoral if the unborn are fully human. It's it's not that kind of thing. You have no fundamental right to do it. You have to go back to the States and argue this out and figure out what you think the unborn are within your community.
0: So... Something that's always asked in Supreme Court judge nomination process, you know, that's televised, is they talk about stare decisis. So I would like to hear you help us understand what is stare decisis, because that term is always used as, you know, so-and-so. This is stare decisis. This is settled law when we talk about Roe v. Wade. So how does Justice Alito justify going against stare decisis and overturning a decision first reached in 1972, which has obviously survived so many legal challenges over the many decades since then. So explain to us, you know, how he talks about it in this draft, but also help our listeners understand what exactly stare decisis is.
1: Yes, it's, it's, The idea is, and I mentioned this earlier, but with, it deserves more more attention, right? Because as you said, Roe v. Wade, Dover v. Bolton, Planned Parenthood v. Casey—these, this right to abortion has survived fifty years of challenges. This it just keeps through almost fifty years of challenges, uh, and so the principle is that unlike a legislator who, and even legislation has the the legislative bodies of the Congress and the Senate have some safeguards in there to prevent it from becoming. Too Too politically driven as far as the moment. That's why you have to have these majorities, and you have to have a lot of uh, a, a lot of agreement to get things passed. A lot of people call it gridlock. It's it's intentional gridlock, even at even at that level. But the Supreme Court is supposed to be above this. They're they're not supposed to be involved in the political process, which is why the they have such a veil of secrecy about the way that they operate. They're supposed to be outside of the pressure that everybody else. Is under so that they can make decisions that are grounded in legal reasoning and not the emotions of whatever is going on in the world around them today. Uh, and so, what Starry Decisis says is that you have precedent, and once precedent has been established, that. The 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 approach that the Supreme Court or all courts ought to take at this point is to honor precedent. There, even go back to common. I think about it in like terms of common law, where they say like cases ought to be decided in a like manner, and that's how we have order in the judicial branch. Uh, is if like cases are decided in like manner, what you want to guard against abuses of power, where they just run around deciding things any way that they want, and so you have to take it very seriously if you're going to overturn precedent. It doesn't mean, by the way, that you never overturn precedent. I mentioned this to you already privately. You know, there was a lovely decision written by Elena Kagan, a Marvel Comics decision, where in there she actually talks about how stare decisis isn't necessarily something that always has to be recognized, but that under certain conditions, you can go against precedent if going against precedent will put you back in a more correct position with the law or our understanding of the law that we have to recognize that there are decisions that have been poorly made and that then you have a responsibility, no matter how much precedent has been put on top of it, no matter how long they've stood, there's a necessity to go back and fix it. Uh, so he gives a five point consideration as to why you should be able to overturn this particular decision in the face of this tradition of stare decisis. Uh, and in that, the first one is that it was egregiously wrongly decided. I mean, he makes the case that there is no law. And we talked about it a little bit. He goes back and recovers all of that. There is no fundamental right to abortion in the Constitution of the United States. And to discover one in the way that it was discovered was bad law. He points out that there are people who at the, who agree with the end result that they get abortion but who disagree with the way and the manner that it was found. They say that Roe v. Wade, Doe versus Bolton, and ultimately even Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that these decisions would have been good law if they were decided in a legislative body. And they, And these people who agree with the outcome said, I would have voted for them in that context. But to be created as law by the Supreme Court is a misappropriation of the power of the Supreme Court. They can't do that. They can respond to laws, but they can't create laws. That's not the way that they are. They make decisions on whether a law is constitutional or not, but they don't craft law for us. And in this case, the Supreme Court crafted law for the for the nation. And so we said this was egregiously decided, um, egregiously wrongly decided. The history was bad. The legal reasoning was bad. The extension of past precedent was bad. We start there. That's how we start. And then he goes through a series of other objections. That it didn't in any way meet the standards which it was offered, and and ultimately there's a lot of weight that's put on the idea that this is not just something that has created division and has hurt our country, but that as it stands under this rule of Roe v. Wade, Doe versus Bolton, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that we live under this paradigm, this legal paradigm that we live under, division will only grow. Well, there'll never be peace in the United States. There'll never be any point where we can come to agreement because. The people of the United States are not allowed to express their deepest convictions and views on a local level about an issue that has demonstrated to have emotional and moral staying power to divide this country politically. So he goes through a series of steps to say, we have reasons, good reasons in this case to see the precedent has been set in a bad place and that we have a responsibility to overrule it in order to hopefully get this nation back on a path where we can find some way to live at peace with each other on this particular issue. And the only answer ultimately is to override the stranglehold that the judicial branch has over this on a national level. And let the other two bodies of the government, the executive and legislative branches, now have their say in this through the democratic process of people fighting it out, electing people that will represent them, and and getting laws that make sense in particular places so that people can have some power, some say again, and not feel hopelessly divided on this with no ever any solution coming there's a lot more to it obviously in a 98 page, but that in a nutshell is how he says he makes the Calito makes the case to this five point program. There's a reason at this point to overturn precedent. We've been given good reason to overturn precedent. And so now is the time to do it. We don't stick to bad law and bad decisions just because they were made before us. In this particular case, we have justification for getting past this now.
0: Of course, there's been so much brouhaha around the leak of this draft. So because of just all of the opinions out there and political pressures, et cetera, do you think that there's any chance that this won't be the final decision of the court? In other words, that when the justices announce this decision in June, that some of them might have changed their vote between the leak of the draft and the actual release of the final decision and, you know, decide to uphold Roe?
1: I I think that the people who are watching this, whether we believe they have good reason to believe these things or not, what you have was Alito writing it and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Barrett and Thomas joining him. Roberts was not joined on this decision. Roberts will write his own decision because Chief Justice Roberts seems to want a compromise and everything you could hear his argument. He did not want to overturn Roe, and it's not. It wouldn't be, by the way, consistent with the way he operated to overturn Roe. Anyway, he doesn't like these massive sweeping changes. He likes to keep uh, legal options open, as a general rule, and how he decides cases. And so Roberts would be in the middle, and then you have the three more liberal justices who are going to go against this, and they're going to write a dissent. The the sense was that maybe Barrett, maybe Kavanaugh, could be encouraged to join Roberts. And then you would have something that affirmed the Mississippi law, but that went short of overruling Roe. I would say this, when it it came out, when when the leak happened on Politico uh, and was published, and my phone just blew up and my computer blew up, I thought, okay, this may put tremendous pressure on some people that were in the middle and let's see if they gravitate towards Roberts. That's really gonna be the only thing that's happened. It would be impossible to imagine at this point somebody going all the way over to join the three more liberal justices and affirming Roe. What you would have more likely than not is people joining Roberts in the middle, something that doesn't destroy Roe, but ultimately would. I mean in the long run it would. It would if even if they got Roberts middle ground, it would mean the end of Roe. It would just mean it would take us forever to get to the end of Roe, because then it would just be a flood of legal cases that are meant to attack the next premise. If you can take it from viability to 15, you can take it from 15 to anywhere that you want. I think that's what the five who are standing on this right now are probably thinking. Robert's position, although not as sweeping, is ultimately going to have the same effect in the long run. So let's just go ahead and vote our conscience on this. Because of the leak now, everything's public, right? I mean, The the secrecy of the court is gone. And so they They were just yesterday before we recorded this, there was a report that they had gotten together again, and there's been no indication that anybody's wavering and that the initial draft is is largely unchanged at this point. He will respond to dissent. When those who dissent turn those notes into him, he will add things to it. But the central legal reasoning behind it, apparently at this point seems unchanged and the vote seems unchanged. So I think it would be unlikely at this point. I'm optimistic that we're going to get to where the initial draft seemed to indicate we were going. I thought I think if there were going to be a change, it would have happened faster. There doesn't seem to be an indication from whoever it is that's leaking information out of the court right now that it's having any effect on where everybody stands as far as their vote goes.
0: So the US Justice Department announced that it was stepping up security for Supreme Court justices, you know, ahead of this final ruling that's going to happen in next month. And Attorney General Merrick Garland, who ironically did not was nominated for Supreme Court and just through political reasons didn't get there. You know, that he directed this step up of security, especially, you know, for example, there's been abortion rights supporters that have had protests outside the homes of a few of the conservative justices since this leak. So what other kinds of backlash have we seen so far? Cause that's, you know, it's significant enough that the Justice Department is giving them extra security.
1: Yeah and you know the the secret service is responsible for the security of the justices and they don't take anything lightly. I mean the secret service does not take threats against the people they protect lightly. So there have been obviously threats against the Supreme Court and the member the justices of the Supreme Court pressure intended to put on them. You have had threats of massive massive action against churches and pro-life organizations around the country. I always thought that was unrealistic. I mean, we did see immediately some protesting at a church in New York City, a Catholic church. It was ugly. I mean, it was just ridiculous. It, it was so, it was, it was so gross. I mean, if you if you see the video of it, the the means of protest was just so obscene and gross during Mother's Day service, right during the Mother's Day service at a Catholic church. Some pregnancy resource centers that have been vandalized. Uh, there's a threat of massive action. So far, it's been less than massive. But it has been an explosion of online advocacy. I mean, you have – and really an explosion of emotional appeals online. As you mentioned earlier, there has not – there's been very little substantive attack on what Alito's reasoning was. I've read a couple of people that took issue with his history. But even there, they really lean on the quickening distinction. And he addresses the quickening distinction – In the draft. So, I don't understand why the historians that have made the claims there, they look as if they haven't really seriously considered what the draft said and they kind of knee jerk response to it. Most of the response has been deeply emotional. It has been very anecdotal. There have been people angry online. There's been a lot of threats against pro life organizations, a lot of threats against churches, but it hasn't yet manifested itself into a large scale assault on all of these things. It's still been fairly small. Scale and 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 we can again we can take for for certainty that Merrick Garland and the Secret Service are going to take the security of the Supreme Court justices seriously. They investigate every threat and make sure that that safety is going to be taken care of. Although it was reported yesterday from whatever leaks wherever that information is coming out that the stress is being felt by the justices that that they're obviously this disruption in the way that they do things is being felt by them and that they are living at a higher level of stress, not to any indication, like I said, that they've changed their votes, but that it is affecting them and that it has changed the feel of how they're operating at the court until June when they adjourn.
0: So, you know, recently, of course, there was the Democratic bill in the U.S. Senate that would legalize Abortion throughout the U.S. and it failed to get the sixty votes that it needed to advance in the Senate. So, since this bill failed, do you think they will keep on trying and put another bill forward?
1: Yeah, they're gonna. I think they're gonna try. I mean, obviously, one of the things that happened immediately was people that were calling for the to take the ability for people to stop to, to, to over just to overwhelm with political power the Senate and. In Congress and make it so that we were going to be able to pass legislation no matter what the Republicans thought. I don't see you're going to get to that place. I don't think you're going to see them blow up procedure and, and get rid of everything that has been existed prior to this to get this thing through. I don't see them to have that kind of will right now to get it done. And I think they'll try to put things forward. I, I, they don't have any real hope of getting it through. Some people believe it's it's in some degree or another political theater that's designed to draw deep distinctions right now as we start to move into an election cycle so that they can look to their base that supports abortion rights and say, look, we tried. You're just going to have to get Republicans out of there because they're going to keep blocking this and get people in there that support the right to an abortion. And so I, I, I don't think they have the will to go nuclear on this and just blow up Senate and congressional procedure and get rid of the, the the filibuster and to get rid of the things that would make it possible for them to pass legislation and to get bills through with just a simple majority. They don't even have a simple majority right now. I mean, Manchin from West Virginia has gone against them. He said that he supports Roe, but what they're suggesting goes well beyond Roe. And so he doesn't want to add to uh, abortion rights at a time when there seems to be a sense that we need to have a conversation about this. So they don't have the support even within their own party to get it all the way done. They got Casey out of Pennsylvania, but they didn't get Manchin. And it doesn't seem to be a will to to blow up, to go the nuclear option and just blow up procedure and get rid of the filibuster. So I think they'll keep putting things through, but I don't think that they are trying to get things through. And I think they'll just keep getting voted down. And I think they're probably going to be fine with that at the moment because it seems like they're more in the mode on that level of drawing political distinctions and putting people at risk, hopefully, from, in their mind, a constituency that will support the idea of abortion rights. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I think, I think, I think their calmer people have said, look, the ultimate effect, even coming out of this discussion at the, senatorial, at the Senate level, they said, look, the ultimate end is going to be there's not going to be much difference in abortion laws in the United States on a state level. Across the country. People who want abortions will still be able to get them in places like California and New York and Illinois. And they're just they're not going to be it's not going to be the abortion wasteland that's being projected. And so there seems to be no sense of urgency for people to get on board and to do something that would just attack, you know, the precedent of procedure within legislative bodies in the United States.
0: So besides the ones that you mentioned on the history of abortion, you know, have there been any other substantial and thoughtful challenges to the bulk of what Alito's opinion is that's been leaked?
1: Not that I've seen, right? I looked, I I really looked out there and tried to find it. I mean, what I've seen, the majority of response is fear mongering, it's and it's. I want. I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt that they're responding honestly. But some of the things you read, I think you cannot possibly believe the things that you're saying. I mean, that they think the. I mean, the, you you have the people that say we're living in the Handmaid's Tale, right? And the the next thing is that we're going to go back and we're going to make everything illegal. That this is going to be a religious utopia that's being tried to put in place by this board of of religious Catholics that are running this, this the country through the Supreme Court and it's been really and then a lot of emotional appeals a lot of anecdotal appeals i had to get an abortion and and it was a terrible thing or it was a great thing for me so everybody should be able to get i had to get an abortion it was a terrible time in my life you shouldn't ever interfere with women getting access to this uh, a lot of emotional appeals to almost imaginary sometimes imaginary situations a lot of emotional appeals to situations that actually exist but that really aren't at risk. I mean, people say, well, you know, I I want to stand with the women who are facing these life-threatening issues. Well, if you're facing a life-threatening issue, nobody's against, I mean, almost nobody's against you being able to have access to a procedure that would save your life, even if it meant, unfortunately, that that procedure, like a two-block topic pregnancy, ended with the the death of one human being. We have to save what life we can save in those situations, and that will remain legal all throughout the United States. I mean, there's been people that are acting like women are going to be dying of 2 pregnancy because nobody will perform the procedure to save their lives. That's just not, that's not even close to being the case. I mean, that, and so th- there's been a lot of fear and, and anxiety about what this means and it very little reasonable consideration either from what Alita wrote or even actually what is likely to happen in the country as a result. What are, what are we going to see as far as changes go. Uh, Because when you talk about the, I I talk about this a lot with people. When we talk about the moral cost of abortion, it's obscenely high. If, if, If you're destroying a million human beings a year, a million innocent human lives a year. That is a, that's an obscenely high moral cost. When you talk about the social cost of restricting abortion, it's not as high as people would think. It's actually relatively low. I mean, we have what, somewhere in the neighborhood of 330 million Americans. When you're talking about the number of abortions that are happening a year, it's a million people. Uh, that's less than you know, it's a third of a percent of the population. If if you give that as every one of those being unique abortions, and so it's. We can handle this is what I'm trying to say on a social level. We're we're capable of looking at what's going on and responding in a way that will alleviate the concerns if we make this a serious responsibility that we hold as a, as a nation to do this. So I, I think that the fear is misplaced, but that's mostly what you see is, is an attempt to whip up fear. Uh, I don't know if people are actually feeling that anxiety. I guess they are. And I think some people are stoking the flames of that anxiety to try to, to leverage it to get the end result that they want to get.
0: Like you said, there's just so much outrage and emotion is quite high online about this scotious opinion, just, you know, from everyday abortion rights folks and, you know, a lot of friends that some of us have. So how do Christians even respond to some of the views like you have talked about? I want to quote one that I read in response to this leak on the New York Times. This person wrote, quote, Roberts purportedly angrily said an investigation was needed to uncover the leak. I suggest an investigation of the entire court and their religious and political affiliations should disqualify the federal jurists. It is absurd that a faction of zealots whose philosophy of American culture married to anachronistic centuries-old dogma is now imposing their barbaric beliefs on a majority of the country clearly opposed to their intentions. They can and are entitled to live however they wish, But to pose it upon the rest of us is the real crime here, not who leaked the decision. So it's the same kind of thing that we hear that, you know, everyone should be free to live however they want, but no one should ever impose their beliefs on other people. Of course, unless it's your own beliefs, (laughs) usually what that means. So how do Christians even respond to that? Because that is quite the angry statement.
1: Yeah, there's a lot in there, right? I would say, first of all... I think Christians need to take heart and steel themselves. We have every right to take our beliefs to the public, to try to convince people that the way that we see the world in particular uh, and the value of human life is it ought to be normative and we have every right to, to and to join the political process and through the democratic process make our case for our belief system. Even if I'm not asking you to become a Christian, I can recognize that my Christian beliefs and the idea that all the all human beings are the image bearers of God and ought to be treated with dignity and respect comports very well with the best aspects of even secular reasoning about how we approach other human beings. That that the the first Duty that we have to every other human being is to allow them to continue to live and to not kill them, uh, and and there's no reason to be, for anyone to be able to say that because that that's the alarming thing in there for me is that if you have a particular religious belief that you should be expelled from the public process of reasoning, that's nonsense because he. Whoever makes this argument isn't—it's holding their view, whatever their worldview is, which could be argued as just as religious as any other view, because they'll have answers to big questions, and they'll have—they'll—they'll uh, they'll evaluate the way that the world is, and they'll have ways that they look at human beings and determine whether or not human beings have value, and all of these things are going to dip into philosophy and metaphysics and different whether they realize it or not, and so it will meet every criteria of a religious evaluation of the world, whether they believe they have non-religious reasons. Or not, So they don't get to say that their view operates from a privileged platform and that people who are basing have theistic views of whatever sort aren't allowed to come to the public square with their views and to argue for the rightness of their beliefs. What complete and utter un-American nonsense. I mean, that's a dangerous way to look at the world. The other thing I would take real exception to and try to encourage people to, to recognize is that the man, or I, I don't know, I don't, was this a man? I keep saying a man, but whoever it was that yeah, said Yeah, it was that, a
0: man that okay. he wrote that. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. The, this man who is accusing the court of imposing their views on the nation is actually the person trying to impose their views on the nation and say that a, a substantial number of people who have deep disagreements with him on the morality, and not all of them are Christian, on the morality of abortion should not be free to go to the public and try to advocate for their position because he believes that his view is so right that it ought to be imposed on us and that we have no say in all of this what alito and what the the four justices that join alito are saying is the exact opposite of imposition they're saying return it to the states they're saying let people argue about it they're saying let the democratic part let the democratic process sort this out they're saying let people all people have a voice in this issue and be empowered to speak to their communities on the rightness or wrongness of abortion they're not saying that new york should have to ban abortion what they're saying is is that new York should be free to have this argument. And once we get rid of Roe versus Wade, then people like me who hold the views that I hold, who live in New York, now have the opportunity to go to their neighbors and say, I think abortion is wrong. And their neighbors have the opportunity to look at them and say, I think abortion ought to be protected as a right. And they can sort it out through the democratic process in their state. This is the opposite of imposing views on other people. This is freeing people to be able to... to enter into the democratic process to make important moral decisions for their community. Uh and it it, it is the i the, the the dangerous idea of being angry about a decision and so let's go after everyone that holds a religious belief that we can some, somehow attach to this uh is Is far more dangerous than what's going on with this decision, right? I mean, this decision is saying sort it out at the state level. And this person's response is go after religious people and bar them from being able to say anything because their views are so obviously wrong. They should never be allowed to participate in the political process. You're the person my friend that has lost their mind on this issue not the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has offered a fairly reasonable position, sorted out on a state level. It's just not a national interest because the the decision that was made that made this national and 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 buried it into the judicial branch of the government was poorly decided and had a terrible impact on our country. And this person's response is ban all people who agree with them from the political process. That's the crazy view. And so I think that the response for Christians needs to be to take a deep breath. I, I think that, you should, I think that I, and I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about this, who who is feeling the pressure of this moment. And I said, you know, the flood of information that's coming 24 hours a day, seven days a week out of social media can make us feel like we have some responsibility to respond to everything immediately. We don't take a deep breath and recognize that until the decision actually comes down, nothing has really happened. It hasn't. We have some idea of what we think the Supreme Court's going to do now, but nothing has happened. And so everybody should take a deep breath. Remember that even the people who disagree with them and that are fearing, afraid, or, or, or ranting or going crazy are the image bearers of God as well. We try to reach out to them with grace and love to alleviate some of the fear and anxiety that they're feeling at the moment. But we don't back down on the principles that are so, that are most important to us. And that no matter what somebody says to me, when they say, you shouldn't say anything, you shouldn't have no right to say anything about what goes on in my body. You should shut up. You should be quiet, Whatever. So look, I stand on a very reasonable position. All human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect, and the unjust taking of innocent human life is wrong. And I feel no responsibility or duty to be quiet about that because expressing that view upsets you. And I'll advocate for that view, and it's not unreasonable, and it's not hateful, and it's the the first fundamental duty that we have to every other human being to let them live.
0: And I will point out to our listeners that I think it's kind of a stereotype that everyone that holds to pro-life views in terms of abortion, that they are are opposed to abortion, are all religious Christians. Because there are organizations, for example, there's one called Secular Pro-Life, and it's a space for atheists, agnostics, and other secular people who are interested in anti-abortion work. And so it's not people who are just Christians that are opposed to abortion. And so- people need to remember that because i think there's just this pile on in terms of religion and the other thing is i want to point out that one thing that was said in that comment was the majority of the people in this country think the views that religious people have are uh, you know harmful and uh, you know just old and ancient and we shouldn't be holding them but i do think that people should be cautioned about saying well the majority views mean something's right Because there was a time in this country when the majority of the views of people in power were um, for chattel slavery, which absolutely is heinous and a stain on this nation's history. And, you know, even going back, of course, it's used a lot of times, but it's true in World War II with Hitler that a majority of the people in, you know, Germany were saying, oh, I agree with his views to, you know, get rid of these people, Jewish people. And so I don't think we should ever base ethics on the majority of views. And also everybody from opposing views, they want, would like to see some of their beliefs also be normative for everyone else. Even if it's something that's economic, like UBI or something like let's give everybody a universal basic income, uh, You know, there's obviously conservative folks politically that wouldn't agree with that, but there are people who think that should be a national law. So I just don't think to say, hey, we shouldn't have a conversation because I don't agree with you is the right way to go. And it's good for Christians to remember that because they can calmly uh, point some of these things out when they're talking to people.
1: Yeah, it's it's not – And I agree agree with everything you said. It's, It's obviously not clear to me that he's right anyway. That the majority of people agree with what he said there, but you're right. And I think there is some. I think I think for Christians we have something special there in recognizing the depths of depravity that the human soul is capable of going to. And the the Bible is, to me, when when I was an atheist coming at the Bible, and then ultimately, even as a new Christian, reading it and becoming familiar with something that I had been unfamiliar with most of my life, I was blown away with how I felt how accurate the human condition is relayed in the Bible, that it understands people better than anything I've ever read. Uh, And and what I mean by that is both the good and the bad. Uh, You see incredible acts of grace, and you see incredible acts of bravery, and you see incredible acts of cowardice and betrayal, and you see just disgusting violence and depravity. And it's important – you hear this even from secular voices or agnostic voices like Jordan Peterson in The Culture Today. I remember hearing a lecture where he said – you know the the warning to be aware of the darkness inside of you and the sense of understanding what you're what you're capable of becoming Solzhenitsyn talked about that right that the line between good and evil isn't those people and me it's drawn right through my heart right the good and evil that i represent and and understanding that i'm capable of making terrible decisions when fear anxiety Uh, bitterness, when all of these things are fostered or encouraged in me by somebody who wants me to get to some end that they're seeking, I'm capable of making terrible, terrible decisions. And I don't just mean not profitable decisions. I mean, human beings, if we have learned anything from history, are capable of being convinced to do ungodly things to their neighbor, to the people that we were called to love uh, and so I, I, I agree we have to be careful when we hear that I, that concept of the majority believe this because as you said the majority can be convinced to do all sorts of awful things and have in the past uh, and also we have to be mindful not to allow people to make us afraid uh, as Christians we have no reason to be afraid of this world our hope is in Christ and and he is unchanging and and his grace and mercy, extends even in the face of terrible cultural battles. And so when people call us into their hatred, their anxiety, their fear, we need to be mindful that that's not his anxiety, his hatred, or his fear, that in Christ we should have peace and we should be able to have the strength to stand against what people are saying when they're saying things that are wrong or antithetical to Christian belief. But we shouldn't also be drawn into the more negative emotions that can drive us towards terrible decisions or a terrible evaluation of our fellow
0: man. Well, there's one more kind of response that's been out there specifically on social media. A lot of I've seen posting like, if you agree with this, copy and post as your status, like particularly on Facebook. So how would Christians reply to this particular Facebook status that's been going around since the leak of the decision? So it starts out, I'm going to just abbreviate it because it's quite long. It says, I'm not pro murdering babies. I'm pro Becky who found out her 20-week anatomy scan that the infant she's carrying is developing without life-sustaining organs. I'm pro Susan, who is sexually assaulted on her way home from work only to get a positive pregnancy test a month later. I'm pro Brittany, who realizes she's no way financially, emotionally, or physically able to raise a child. I'm pro Christina, who does not want to be a mother, but birth control methods failed her. I'm pro Jessica, who finally is Having the strength to get away from her abusive spouse to find out that she's carrying his child. I'm pro Vanessa, who went, who wanted to be pregnant for years, and she's gone in and she only hears silence where there should be a heartbeat. Um, I'm pro Courtney, who has found out that she has a um, e- ectopic pregnancy. You can argue and say that I'm pro-choice all you want, but the truth is I'm pro-life, their lives, women's lives. You don't get to pick and choose which scenario should be accepted. Women's rights are meant to protect all women regardless of their situation. So how should Christians respond to that? Because it sa- starts off, I'm not pro-murdering babies.
1: Well, the, the, First of all, let's go to the very end there, that assertion. You don't get to pick and choose which scenario should be accepted. That's nonsense. Of course I do. I mean, in, in the sense of as a society, let's go through that list because you give a multiple multiple different scenarios that, in there that that has been passed around, uh, and of course you have to sort through all that. Of course you do. It's not only is that that a silly thing to say at the end, but it's it's just so wrong that it it it, it destroys the whole the, their whole point because we have to sort through every one of those cases. I mean, some of those that you're saying. Uh, that she's no way financially or physically able to raise a child is entirely different from somebody whose life is on the line is going to die. Who's entirely different from somebody where there's no heartbeat because if there's no heartbeat, then then the child's not there. I mean, this isn't even considered an abortion at this point. This is the evacuation of, of a, of a child that died. And, and so, you know, she miscarried. So we're just going to, that's that's not an abortion, right? Uh, so the idea that we don't get to pick and choose between the list that we're offered there is just ridiculous. I told you, nobody's against treatment for 2 black topic pregnancies. So, and they give that as an example, and and then you have some more startling examples in there that that are what we would call the hard cases, right? A, ch- a child that was raped uh, and sexually abused through incest, another rape victim. Uh, we have somebody in there uh, who has fetal abnormalities, and so. And, and, and so what we're talking about there are the hard cases. Well, here's the thing. Hard cases are going to be hard no matter what we decide about abortion. And the possibly the least sensitive thing that we can say to somebody going through anything like this is, we'll go ahead and get an abortion and you'll be fine. Because they won't. They won't be fine. There's more to this. There's more emotionally going on here, more spiritually going on here. And nobody I, that I know, that I respect in the pro-life movement is under the opinion that if we get rid of Roe v. Wade, that everything's golden and we're fine. We understand two things. Number one, that we're going to have to have a discussion on a state level, and a local level about what our community wants to do as far as the standards of approaching abortion. And they're going to be different laws around different parts of the country. The number, the number two thing that we understood that we ought to understand is that the, this puts a greater burden and responsibility on us as a Christian community and as a community as a whole outside of Christianity, including some of the many, uh, these atheists, that I've worked with over the years to reach people who feel like their life is in crisis and find some meaningfully meaningful way to help them to to, to get involved to get in, in, you know in essence to get our hands in here and to get dirty in this thing. When I find out that my neighbor needs something and they're terrified of the future. We have to find ways within our community to help. That's why pregnancy resource centers exist already. Well, they're not going to go away. As a matter of fact, they're going to need more funding than ever before uh, if Roe v. Wade goes away and this in a, a particular local community says that we aren't going to have abortion in this particular area. Now the emphasis comes on getting the rest of the community involved in these places so that we have a, a place that's built to respond to these hard cases, to reach out to people that are facing an uncertain future, to find ways as a community to rally around them and say, We're not going to let you face this alone. And so the idea that we don't get to pick and choose off of those lists, which ones we support and which ones we don't, that's nonsense. Of course we do. And because they're they're entirely different moral situations all through that list. And some of them are hard cases that genuinely require the, 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 the community to gather around these people and to give them all the love and grace and mercy that we can to help them to overcome the situation they found themselves in. Some of them have nothing to do with abortion at all. And some of them have to do with the idea that you made a choice. And the consequences that you have to face are the consequences that you understood were natural to the choice that you were making. And I'm sorry that you're facing a pregnancy, but I don't know anybody that doesn't understand that sex is a that pregnancy is a byproduct of sex, or at least a possible byproduct of it. And so if you're going to consent to the actions, you get the consequences of those actions. And that's the case on some of the things on that list, where it's one of those things that we're not ungracious to the person saying, Too bad, you shouldn't have had sex, but we're recognizing, look, we'll help you out as best as we can. That's why we have pregnancy resource centers all over the country. But because you made a mistake doesn't mean that you now get to turn around and take a human life. That's not how the world works. You have a basic obligation and duty to all other human beings, particularly to your own child you have a greater obligation and duty to them than to have to anybody else. And so for some of those on that list, it's going to be we'll help you out, but you just have to recognize that there are consequences to the actions and decisions that we make and that we have to live with those consequences and actions. And that this may mean an imposition for you, that this community will do everything that we can to help you to overcome this imposition. Uh, but you don't get the right to destroy that life. So hard cases are hard cases, no matter what abortion law is. Those other cases are just the results of actions. And then some of them have nothing to do with abortion at all. And, and the, the assertion at the end that we don't get to pick and choose. You have to take it all. No, I don't. We, as, as a matter of fact, as a community, we should look at every individual and look at the circumstances they're in to determine how we can step in there and help. If if our Christian duties are anything, they're personal right? I mean, if if it's anything is to recognize that God loves me personally. And so he asked me to love my neighbor personally. And so I need to get into my neighbor's life and find out what's going on with them when they need help. Uh, and so I think that to begin at the end there to say, well, you're absolutely wrong. We do get to evaluate each one of these situations individually and to find out what the best way to help everybody is. And there is no universal answer for every woman on this list because every single woman on this list is facing something different.
0: Well, in an op-ed in the New York Times on May 11th, the regular op-ed columnist Gail Collins, her um, op-ed is titled, Don't Be Fooled, It's All About Women and Sex. And she says, um, long time ago when she was going to Catholic school, she's older, I guess, there was at least this communication that was consistent at her Catholic school, that no sex is allowed except for married couples who want to have babies. And so basically she's saying, this is really what this entire decision is about. It's about punishing women who want to have sex for pleasure, and it's legislating religious beliefs of just one segment of the public for women. So how do you respond to that? That really, this is just about Punishing women who have finally, since the 1960s, I guess, well, before that, but, you know, the birth of the modern feminist movement, you know, Betty Friedan's seminal book and uh, the feminist stick in the 1960s. Since then, it's, it's just been about punishing women who want to have sex for pleasure. Basically, that's what this is all about.
1: Uh, You know, I, I think it's funny because I was in the fall, I was in an event with Teresa Pekanovic, who is a progressive atheist against abortion. And she was actually involved in some of the, the, in the news story in Washington, DC with the, um, five mature fetuses that were found and the they call for an investigation into what happened at that abortionist office, because there appears to be illegal abortions going on there. And she gave a, she was, she was on a panel and somebody was talking about promiscuity and she, she entered in as an atheist and said, what's wrong with promiscuity, promiscuity, promiscuity. Uh, she doesn't see any problem with that as long as people are responsible. So uh, I I don't think her and, and people who work with her in the progressive groups, uh, Kelsey Hazard, uh, the secular pro life and these people that are atheists, it have any problem with women having sex, that, and, but at the same time, they recognize that, um, you shouldn't be able to kill another human being because you don't like the consequences of the actions that you chose. Uh, it's been interesting. I think one of the one of my favorite responses that I saw about this, what came from Kristen Hawkins at Students Flight Life of America, I thought what just is one of the funniest things I'd ever seen her tweet where somebody had sent to her something along the lines of, um you know this is going how is this going to affect our sex life the hookup culture is going to be uh, destroyed by this and her response was nobody cares what you do you just don't get to kill other human beings i mean it, and it really is at root of this now th- of course there are as a christian i i do think the the hookup culture is a bad thing. And of course I have sexual ethics that are driven by my Christian beliefs, but my objection to abortion has nothing to do with whether I want people out there having sex or not. What it has everything to do with is that I am deeply, deeply disturbed by the idea that our culture embraces the idea that if we find the next generation to be a hindrance to whatever it is that I want to do. If we find them inconvenient, that we have empowered people to kill the next generation before they're born. That's my problem. Right. And so when you flip this around and to say, well, like where Kristen said, like, I don't care what you do in the privacy of your own home in the sense of I've, that's not why I'm out there advocating or arguing about things is completely disconnected from the things that you're saying. What I just don't want you to do is to be able to hire somebody to help you kill your child before they're born. Because I think that that's a distinct and whole human life that ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And that a culture that invades the womb to destroy life before it's born is going to be open to all sorts of other abuses beyond just that one horrible evil that it's participating in. Uh, And so... I, I think there is a confusion, right? There's a sense that we want to control their bodies and we can't tell them enough. I have no interest in controlling your body. I just don't want you to kill other human lives. Uh, and so come to terms with that, the decisions that you make have consequences. And if the consequences of those decisions is the creation of a distinct and whole human life, you don't get to kill them. That's the point of the pro-life movement. Now, certainly the Catholic church has reasons to say that women shouldn't have sex and men shouldn't have sex before they're married. It's not just women, it's men as well. But but the fascinating thing is that historically, let's go back a little bit. If you read like Marvin Alasky's book, Abortion Rights, where he talks about in the early 20th century, he takes away these different waves of the, the push to legalize abortion or to, make, to normalize abortion. In the early 20th century, as you move away from rural America and go to this sort of uh, urban America and these cities, and for the first time, people work in communities where they're not known and they can do things they shouldn't be doing because they don't have the judgment of the community surrounding them. Men are out there having affairs and getting women pregnant. And it's those men who are the voice to try to get abortion legalized in the United States because they wanted to be able to protect themselves from the consequences of their actions. So far from it being the this push at this time, far from it being this empowering moment for women to be able to go out there and make sexual choices liberated from the consequences of their actions. The power that was pushing it initially were these people that were victimizing women who were impregnating them and then were trying to hide them and hide what they had done from their families. Powerful people uh, in particular cities like New York. And so I, I think the idea of this being a liberating thing is, is ridiculous. First of all, one of the things I like to point out to people all the time is that one of the things we say is an inert ur- sense of urgency is that one in four women will have gotten abortion during the course of their lifetime in the United States. Number somewhere between one and four and one in five. It's actually closer to one in five right now. But then that means seventy-five to eighty percent of women aren't getting abortions at all during the course of their lifetime. The majority of women don't need to access this to live their life as free and independent women seeking out the the goods in their community. Uh, and so the idea that that women's liberation and equality are somehow tied to something that seventy-five percent of women will never do, I think, is just complete nonsense.
0: Well, I'd like to pose this question to you. In her May 8th op-ed in the New York Times, Christian author Tish Warren Harrison asked various different pro-life, and she also writes whole-life leaders, this question. If Roe is overturned, where should the pro-life and whole-life movements direct energy to support women, unborn children, and families?
1: Yeah, I read that. And and, um, that piece, it it was interesting because it was a different variation of responses. I think that a lot of the people that were responding come from the, a political left position, which is interesting because you see them pushing for policies. I tend to be conservative in the sense of that I believe what, you know what's understood as the principle of subsidiarity, which means the more, the more local the institution, the better it is to handle the problems in our community. And so I don't look for a federal government. I do think that the general tone of almost every response that I read, though, I agree with. That we have a burden on us that exists anyway to find a Christian response to the needs in our community. Not, and this is why I think it works better when it's local. I think that the best help that can be offered is by me helping my neighbor. Or if I, it can't be handled by a family, then you go to the next largest institutions, the churches, and the churches establishing parachurch ministries or organizations. In our area, for example, must Ministries deals with the homeless in our area and, and offers up a place for them to stay, offers food, clothing, and all the churches in our area work with Must Ministries. And people from all the churches go in and volunteer and we supply to stock up their their pantry and to give them need, the things that they need to help people out. Must often, with other organizations there, coordinate outreaches when it gets cold. And and so there you see the model that can be done. Pregnancy resource centers are doing this in this particular area. And what we have to do is become more mindful of the places within our community that are already equipped to help the people in our community and that are reaching out to people that need help in this particular area and empower them. We need to be better. I mean, I, I but I th- we need to be better anyway, right? I mean, I don't think we have to wait for Roe v. Wade to be overturned for us to become better at helping our neighbor. I mean, that's one of the things that we're called to do. One of the great commandments, right? Read the Lord your God and love your as yourself. And so I think we always have to be actively seeking to love our neighbors ourselves and look for what that means in all these particular areas. And in particular, the issue that we're talking about today is abortion. Then that will mean looking for ways to alleviate the fears and the pressure that people are feeling that are driving them towards abortion and help them to make more life-affirming choices. And there are lots of ways that we can do that. But almost all of those ways will ultimately best be handled by the community itself looking to help the members of their community. And if it's, you know, the reason that you go to a larger institution is because it's necessary to go to a larger institution because the problems become larger. Uh, I think that we would probably have some discussion about the advancement of progressive policies that those some of those people are advocating for, because not because I disagree with the idea of helping those people, but because there may be some discussion about whether progressive policies are the best way to help those people. Or there might be what we call cobra effects to to financial policies that incentivize things that we don't want to incentivize and that ultimately hurt people that you're trying to help. But I think that the general theme of that article is correct, that we have to net recognize that as we move away from a more destructive overall culture as it, as, as, as it pertains to the unborn, we have to participate in a more life-affirming culture personally getting involved as best we can and being able to create a life-affirming culture and recognizing the, the duty to love our neighbors as ourselves as an active part of our lives and not just something that we hope we can outsource to other people to take care of while we go and do the things that we want to do.
0: Well, finally, on a much lighter note, I have a fun rapid fire question for Jay and I ask our authors these questions so that our Listeners and readers can get to know them better. So it's almost summer. Do you have any specific vacations planned?
1: Well, we always take, if we can, uh, one of one of our donors gives us access to the beach house, and that's been our family's vacation. And so that's always at the very end of summer. So we're always hoping to get back there because that's our happy place as a family. It's just a very peaceful place for us. And it's a week where, where we're cut off from everything else before we go back to school, back to work, back to the fall schedule, all the things that are coming with that. And then in addition to that, my 13-year-old daughter is on a, a very competitive lacrosse team. She, Her lacrosse team actually is the number one team in the country right now. And that, may, that changes all the time. But right now, the number one team in the country in her age group. So we have a lot of tournaments. So I'm going to be driving to all sorts of parts of the country. I'll be going to New Jersey and Maryland and we'll go to Pennsylvania. And so We'll be driving all over the country to get her to her various tournaments. So that, that will be another part of our summer, which by the way is lovely. I mean, I, I don't say that as a burden. I say that as drive, drive. I like driving. I would like, you know, I can't, I, it's just financially not feasible for us to fly. Cause we work in ministry all over the country, but um, driving is something we love to do. So we choose to do it because more people in our family can go to the tournaments and we get to spend a day in the car together, just talking and hanging out, listening to music and time in a hotel and and it's just it's lovely family time. So those are the two things that we're looking forward to this summer.
0: Well, thanks Jay for being a guest again on the Postmodern Realities podcast and we'll have Jay back of course once the final decision comes out so that we can talk about it and its ramifications.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: You've been listening to episode 288 of the Postmodern Realities podcast from the Christian Research Journal. Today, my guest was Jay Watts, who has written an online exclusive article for the Christian Research Journal. His article is called, The Leaked Draft, Is This the Fall of Roe vs. Wade? And our subscribers can access it on our website, equip.org.